Welcome to The Free Will Show, a podcast that provides a beginner-friendly introduction to free will while also exploring cutting-edge developments on the topic. I'm Taylor Sear. And I'm Matt Flummer. In this bonus episode, we talk with Garrett Pendergraft about his new book, Free Will and Human Agency, 50 Puzzles, Paradoxes, and Thought Experiments. We'll be back next month with Season 5, which focuses on the problem of freedom and divine foreknowledge. Thanks for listening. I'm happy to introduce Garrett Pendergraft, Blanche E. Sieber Professor of Philosophy at Pepperdine University. Garrett has written several articles on the metaphysics of free will, including on the consequence argument, the problem of divine foreknowledge and free will, and more. Uh, And most recently, he's written a book called Free Will and Human Agency, 50 Puzzles, Paradoxes, and Thought Experiments, uh, which will be published uh, by Rutledge on July 21st, 2022, the day this episode will be released. Um, unlike some other Rutledge books, this one's available in paperback right away and for just $24, which is relatively cheap uh, for a new book from Rutledge. Uh, and Matt and I really like the book, so we've invited Garrett to give us a preview in this uh, bonus episode of the podcast. Uh, welcome to the show, Garrett. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself, your work, and how you came to be interested in working on free will? Thank you, Taylor. Happy to be here. I appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, Yeah, so my uh, initial uh, education was in computer science. That was my undergraduate degree. Uh, I did that because I wanted to work in visual effects. Um, Not for any good reason. Uh, I just thought it was cool. Uh, And so (laughs) I figured I'd make a career out of it. Uh, So I did computer science. I worked in in that industry for a few years. um, But through uh, toward the end of my undergraduate career, started getting more interested in uh, theology and philosophy of religion, and a lot of the reading I was doing, sort of on the side, um, I would kind of keep on bumping up against philosophers and people doing philosophy. So um, that kind of pushed me toward maybe testing the waters of graduate school and seeing if I might want to um, do a little bit more education um, in uh, in in philosophical areas. Uh, so I did that part-time at first and then pretty quickly decided I wanted to, to switch uh, to full-time graduate school. Um, initially, my interests were pretty broad. I mean, definitely in the, in the areas of philosophy of religion and uh, topics that kind of intersected with that. Um, but I took a uh, seminar with uh, David Hunt on uh, the metaphysics of free will and was introduced to Van Wagen's book and lots of other articles um, and that really kind of uh, kickstarted my interest in. Uh, I'd always been interested in sort of the the kind of inherent tensions between theological doctrines and uh, our sort of perception of ourselves as agents, uh, and also um, scientific um, doctrines. You might say that's maybe too strong of a word, but in mm-hmm. our perception of ourselves as agents. Uh, so I'd always been interested in those kinds of tensions, but then this seminar really sort of solidified that as something I wanted to study um, in depth. Uh, my first couple of years um, working toward a PhD, I was actually focused more on epistemology, uh, and I was trying to look at ways to sort of um, bring together some of the epistemic uh, issues and agency issues, but then ended up uh, transferring to uh, UC Riverside, which, um, as you know, uh, is a great place to study agency, and so yeah. decided to make my focus a little more directly free will and more responsibility. Um, yeah, I really benefited from, you know, tutelage and mentorship of uh, professors like John Martin Fisher and others there at UCR uh, and still kind of waiting to get tired of, of thinking about and writing about free will uh, hasn't happened yet. Uh, maybe it will at some point. Um, I've done a little bit of other things here and there, but um, yeah, so I'm still just really, uh, this, that's one thing I love about the, about the, the issues and the areas There's sort of always, always more to explore, whether you want to go deeper or whether you want to sort of broaden, um, there's always, always more stuff to, to pick up and look at. 
As Taylor mentioned, you have a new book called Free Will and Agency, 50 Puzzles, Paradoxes, and Thought Experiments. 50 free will puzzles is a lot of puzzles. So mm -hmm. could you tell us a little bit about what you cover in the book and who your intended audience is? Is this a book that someone without a PhD in philosophy can pick up and read? Yeah, so definitely uh, a lot of puzzles. Uh, the idea of when you're looking at 50 chapters uh, that you have to revise, uh, that's a bit of a daunting prospect. I mean, the you know, overall length is about what, you know, it's not any longer necessarily than a, than a the typical monograph, but something about like, you know, 50 separate chapters is a lot to, to revise and, and cycle through. Um, but yeah, so I, I try to, um, I tried to treat it as um, introducing most of the salient issues that you might encounter in an introduction uh, to free will and more responsibility. Um, of course, you know, filtered through these puzzles and paradoxes and thought experiments. Um, I had a hard time deciding exactly how to carve these puzzles up. You know, a lot of them could fit in multiple categories. And I tried a few different sort of categorization schemes, but I uh, ended up with five different categories. Um, the first one, broadly speaking, involves fatalism and those kinds of challenges, um, which I described as more sort of existential challenges. Um, and then there's uh, the largest section, as you might imagine, is on uh, determinism and the, the threat from determinism. And then I have uh, a section on practical reason and some of the more is issues about intention and uh, explanation of action and things like that. Um, and then uh, uh, a, a section on um, social dimensions uh, and involving more and more responsibility and, and blame and praise and punishment, things like that. Um, and then the, the last uh, section um, involves uh, moral, moral luck. So those are the, those are the main categories and there's a lot of, you know, cross references and, um, and a lot of room for maybe dispute about the best place for a particular chapter to go. Um, and, and yeah, definitely tried to write it. So it was accessible to someone without a PhD. Um, I think maybe the, maybe the sort of, um, ideal, uh, ideal audience might be, um, you know, like upper level undergrad with some philosophical background, but you know, there's a few chapters that do, um, are more for those with background, but I tried to make most of them accessible, even to someone with, with no background in mm -hmm. philosophy. Um, right. and, and then also, you know, throw in a, a few nuggets, uh, even for those who are more familiar with the issues. So I don't know if I succeeded, you know, it's dangerous to try to do, uh, <laughs> yeah. things, uh in right. one, one volume, but yeah, definitely designed to be accessible. Um, and I'll, I'll be curious, uh, to sort of hear whether, whether it actually is. Yeah. Well, listeners of this podcast will be familiar with some of the puzzles that you discuss in the book, like manipulation cases, the grandfather paradox, um, divine foreknowledge, and you mentioned moral luck as the kind of last section of the book. Um, do you have any favorite puzzles out of the 50 uh, from the book? Yeah, there's a several several that I would consider favorites, um, kind of for different reasons. You know, I, I, uh, Stranger Than Fiction uh, was a chapter I really enjoyed writing up. I've always loved that movie. Mm -hmm. And so um, it came to mind pretty quickly as, as a potential chapter. So I sort of, I suspected there might be something there, um, a way to connect it up with with some literature and philosophy in, in an interesting way. And so it was it was fun to sort of see that suspicion vindicated, I guess. Um, you know, I was hoping yeah. there'd be something there. And, and I think th I think there is, I think there was. So that was a fun one. Um, a little bit more, um, a little bit more in depth into some of the details, even and even dialogue uh, of the film. So that was a fun one. And then, um, you know, time travel is always fun. Uh, nice. Grandfather paradox is always mm -hmm. worth thinking about. Uh, that's probably the the puzzle I would lead with if I were just I don't know in a conversation uh, on an airplane with a stranger, <laughs> and they wanted to know. Oh, give me an example of of one of the chapters. I'd probably lead with the grandfather paradox. I've tried. I've tried. Uh, 
leading with other puzzles like Newcomb's problem. That one doesn't go over quite as well. (laughs) So, so there's, I think the grandfather paradox is sort of like a good entry point into, Hey, this is, this is kind of what we're, what we're uh, about here in this book. Um, I actually enjoyed writing the chapter on the rollback argument um, because I was able to sort of not really on purpose, but really sort of realized, Oh, there's sort of this historical treatment of it from William James, um, which is kind of interesting. And, but he's actually using it as a defense of libertarianism uh, in Mm -hmm. a way. And of course I I think what, you know, initially when I was thinking of the rollback argument, I was thinking of it as an argument against libertarianism. And so it was kind of fun to, to sort of, explore how hey there's this there's this um thought experiment there's this way of thinking about reality and sort of manipulating i guess reality uh conceptually that can actually maybe be used in different ways depending on um how exactly you go about uh filling in the details so that was fun yeah that's yeah. interesting uh, yeah and then um the uh the chapter the chapter called the daily wavester which is a reference to uh dale webster who's a, a surfer. He holds the um, Guinness record for most consecutive days of surfing. So <laughs> like 14, like more than almost, yeah, like 14,000 days, like 40 years straight of surfing. He, uh, oh. he got three <laughs> waves, at least three waves every day. Um, and, you know, even, even in the midst of illness and deaths in the family and natural disasters. And anyway, there, there's a, a documentary called Step Into Liquid about big wave surfing. And they interview him, uh, and he's he's kind of a trip. But anyway, I liked that one because um, it struck me as like a real life incarnation or instantiation of one of John Martin Fisher's thought experiments, a salty old sea dog. Oh yeah. Uh, so sailing versus surfing, but still, I was like, hey, this is like a perfect illustration of this puzzle about um, you know our abilities to do otherwise. Uh, and how they interact with the fixity of the past, um, especially when you have someone who's sort of habitual. And so that was that was fun because I'm like, there's really no, I can't think of anybody more habitual than um, a daily wavester. Yeah. So yeah. let's uh, let's let's sort of you know talk about these issues in the context of uh, of him. So that was a fun one to to kind of work through and read a little little bit in Surfing Magazine and watch the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's good questions there too about choices in life and. Uh, worthwhile mm-hmm. pursuits uh, as well right. I mean, to, you know question uh his his pursuits but um you know he he he, he uh had a project and he went for it mm-hmm. uh, another uh, there's a couple other um the actually no well there's there's several others i could go on um you know it's fun to work on the the pre-punishment um uh, chapter um th- that one and the one about responsibility for addiction um the one about agent regret um, those are some of the chapters where i think i learned the most mm-hmm. you know sort of like um, issues I had encountered and, and had a superficial understanding of, but it was um, really fun to kind of dig in and, and get to a point where I felt like I could explain what was going on um, mm-hmm. and got to read some read some new stuff. So there were a lot, um, but really, I mean, for all of them, uh, it was, um, you know, there were none, none of the chapters where I was like, well, I should probably include this, but I kind of hate it. Um, I didn't really get that feeling. It was really, they were all really interesting to figure out, um, okay, how can I hear these issues that sort of need to be raised? Um, here's, uh, you know, a case that definitely raises them, but how can I sort of most clearly draw out the issues and, um, and how can I explain, explain what's going on? And then also too, since it's, the chapters are so short, uh, you know, between a thousand and 1500 words, the, the question is, 
how can I sort of capture some of the discussion and the literature around these mm-hmm. papers um, in just a few paragraphs. Um, and, and it was also a nice thinking about, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to offer just a few reading suggestions. Uh, sometimes there can yeah. be, you know, if you get a whole, a whole bibliography of stuff, it's kind of hard to know where to start with that. And so part yeah. of the, part of the, the idea with the target audience was here's, you know, three to five suggestions of things to read. Um, if you are interested and want to sort of what, what to read next. Um, so that was thinking about how to explain the, um, how to present the case and it draw out the issues in a clear way, and then also recommend the right kinds of uh, reading. Uh, that was that was a really enjoyable process for all of the chapters. Very cool. Nice. That's one of the things that I like about the book the most is like, like you said, like there are going to be if you're doing 50 puzzles related to free will and agency, there are going to be things that even as a you know someone who's specializing in free will, there are going to be things that I haven't really studied that carefully, and yeah. so. Yeah, having those resources at the end of those chapters is great for just trying to get into that literature if you want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really I learned a lot, and my hope is that um, you know even someone who so the even some let's say someone who is um, even a professional philosopher but maybe looking to expand uh, and and get into free will for the mm-hmm. first time. I'm hoping it could be a really good resource for that kind of individual. Yeah, and you know even someone who who works in free will, there might be a few chapters where it's like, oh yeah, I've always wanted to. Um, kind of explore what what what's going on with this particular um particular issue so yeah that's the hope is that it'll have that value uh, as well but it's hard it's hard to narrow it down and you sort of feel like you're um like am i really choosing the essential uh (laughs) readings for this particular issue but uh you know open to open to questions and criticisms on that front uh, it's room room for revising yeah Was the number 50 a number that you came up with first? And how difficult was it to come up with 50 different puzzles? <laughs> like, was was there was it easy and you had to leave some out? Or were you, like, struggling to come up with a few more to get up to 50? Yeah, no, that's a good question. The uh, It was um, presented to me as uh, we're looking for 50 puzzles. Rutledge has a series that, they, that they've re- kind of kicked off. Um, I think there are now... I think this one, uh, my book, I think is the second one in the series. There's one in epistemology already out and there's um, several under contract and in the works on other areas like aesthetics and political philosophy and, and many others. Uh, and so the, yeah, so my initial thought was, well, probably there's, I could think of maybe 20, 25, um, it's going to be hard to get to 50. Um, and so I kind of reached, you know, uh, reached out to, to friends and colleagues and um, utilized some lifelines uh, and, and <laughs> phone a friend on that to try to figure out, um, okay, can we really get to this number 50? And so uh, was able to actually, with with help, was able to get up to 50 um, relatively easily. And then over time, you know, you're writing something and you realize, oh, this chapter is actually should probably end up being two. Yeah. Sometimes you would consolidate. Other times you're like, well, this is, this, this is interesting. Maybe it's... Um, Maybe there's a really interesting argument I'd love to cover, but there just isn't any sort of specific puzzle or, or thought experiment that, that I can really use. So we'll have to sort of work it in some, some, in some other chapter. But in the end, um, and then even at the, you know, toward the relatively late in the game, there are other puzzles coming to mind. Like actually the pre-punishment chapter, that was one of the last ones that came to mind. And, you know, it was one of those things were like, oh yeah, of course, uh, we, there should be a chapter on, on pre-punishment. Um, I can talk about minority report and right. all things like that. So in the, in the end, I ended up having, so if you look at just sort of 
how many sort of potential or candidate chapters or documents where I started writing something. Uh, they're about 75 uh, all told. Oh, man. And so, yeah, yeah. which is, uh, you know, it's definitely a lot. And, yeah. but several of the ones there in the sixties and seventies ended up uh, in the, in the final manuscript. So, yeah. So initially I was like, how am I going to even get to 50 in the end? Ended up being 75. <laughs> um, I think it would be kind of fun to have a, I don't know what platform would be appropriate for this, but it would be, you know, a lot of times um, it's popular in sports, especially, you know, you do these or maybe film, you do these power rankings where it's like mm-hmm. you know, the top 20 or 50. And of course there's polls and stuff mm-hmm. all over the place. But I think it'd be fun to kind of have an ongoing, like, you know, I'm not sure what the exact metrics would be. Maybe it's like fruitfulness or interest or maybe literary uh, virtue of some sort. But it'd be really fun to have a kind of ongoing ranking, like that would be cool. The 2022 power ranking of <laughs> free will related puzzles, yeah. or even just philosophical thought experiments in general. Sure. And you know, you can sort of, well, yeah. you know, we have a new number one because of this book that came out, or this movie that came out. Or, <laughs> it'd be fun to kind of an ongoing, and then yeah. you'd even have new editions of the book. Like, hey, um, you know, sorry to these three puzzles, they dropped off. You know. Yeah, also receiving votes, but uh, didn't quite make the. Well, you, right. since you had 25 extra, now you just need 25 more, and then you can come out with 50 more puzzles. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, volume two, uh, 50 yeah. more uh, puzzles. Uh, paradox and I like that. That's something to, to look at. Yeah. Something else I really love about this book, and it's sort of already come up in our conversation, is all the pop culture references. So you mentioned Stranger Than Fiction, Minority Report. You also referenced Magnolia, Tenet, even The Simpsons and Kung Fu Panda. Uh, which I haven't seen, uh, I must confess. Uh, <laughs> would you want to you talk? You got to watch it with your kids. I guess I right. should. Yes. Right, worth a watch. <laughs> I'm, I'm very interested, given that there's some free will puzzle in Kung Fu. Panda, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, would you want to talk through any of any more of these pop culture references and how they illustrate one of the puzzles from the book? Yeah, sure. So I mentioned Stranger Than Fiction, which I think is really fantastic for um, kind of illustrating this idea of the narrative value of a life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you sort of, you have a character, um, I guess I'll try not to spoil the movie, but you have a character who realizes that he is the, uh, well, a character in the film uh, played by Will Ferrell, who realizes that he's the protagonist of, uh, of a novel that's still being written. And so this is obviously a disconcerting realization. Uh, the author is someone who always kills off her main characters so <laughs> for disconcerting. And so he, he, he looks up an, an expert in literature and tries to get some advice and counsel on it um, and then ends up uh, meeting with the author, which is a strange experience for them both. Uh, right. So I think that, that one's really fun because it's um, the theme kind of comes up and it shows up in, in um, work by Velleman and others. But um, the theme of sort of like, well, the um, it's not just what happens in your life that matters. It's uh, the order in which it happens, mm-hmm. the sort of narrative that it plays a role in. And so I think that, unfortunately, you know, I wish it I wish it weren't true, I guess, that a lot of times sort of literature and film can portray a, a philosophical issue sort of in more concrete or compelling ways than just, uh, you know, a nice, clear regimented argument. Right. Um, maybe it's, it's probably a good thing uh, that, that that's true. But so I think that that's, that one is um, uh, that film was just really um, an excellent portrayal. And it's, so, you know, usually um, when you're, when you're trying to sort of draw out some philosophical lessons from, from a film or a book, you know, you kind of have to like, um, 
you have to sort of take, you know, lead out some details or sort of tweak a few things because you're like, well, this isn't exactly what, you know, um, what the, what the issue is, but it's, it's close enough that we can kind of work with it. Uh, but strange in the fiction is just really like, it just lays out the issues in a really straightforward, you know, there's no sort of, um, translation or, or conversion needed. It just, um, it's just excellent. So that was fun. Uh, minority report. Um, I, you know, again, as soon as I sort of, as soon as it came to mind, I was like, Oh yeah, we definitely need to include that. Um, and it's, you know, excellent kind of portrayal of, of Mm pre-punishment. Um, and it, it, for a lot of these chapters too, it was really, I enjoyed doing a little bit of, you know, I'm not a, I'm definitely not a historian uh, of philosophy. So this is, um, you know, maybe laughable to some listening, but it was, it was really exciting to sort of, okay, here's this idea or a kernel of an idea or a thought experiment. Let's see if we can sort of trace it back to just either to give credit where it's due or just kind of for fun, you know, Mm -hmm. where did it first show up? And so of course, minority report is based on a, on a short story by Philip K. Dick um, uh, from the fifties. But um, you know, that, that, that idea of pre-punishment is in Lewis Carroll, right? The looking glass, there's a little mention to it, um, just sort of a passing mention. Um, And so, it was, um, you know, I think that there was, uh, again, Minority Report is just a really um, kind of compelling portrayal of how pre-punishment might go um, mm-hmm. if it were to be implemented. Um, you know, there's still kind of the puzzle with pre-punishment about if it's going to be just, then the the crime still has to occur uh, in right. some sense. So there's like, that's sort of an interesting thing that's kind of still puzzling me about, about the pre-punishment. Um, so that was a fun one. And then... Um, you know, I also wanted to just sort of as, as a, um, as a tribute to my, uh, my adolescence, I wanted to include the Simpsons if possible. Um, <laughs> so I ended up using, um, there's an episode where it's actually one of the Halloween episodes, the, um, Treehouse of horror episodes, but Lisa has a science experiment where she creates a civil inadvertently creates a civilization, um, from a, a tooth that she puts in soda. She's trying <laughs> to demonstrate that. You know, she's trying to ruin ruin soda for everyone. You know, something like, you know, science has ruined various things. Uh, she's like, let's see if we can ruin ruin soda. <laughs> so anyway, she she uh, and then her and then Bart uh, shocks her. Uh, I think his experiment is to see whether nerds conduct electricity. <laughs> <laughs> so he you know shuffles his feet and then shocks her, uh, and so she transfers the shock to the tooth in the cola and. What do you know? It generates civilization. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's a little bit of a stretch, but I was like, well, we can imagine that happening over and over again and observing, you know, and if we, if we observe the same thing every time, then that's sort of a, a picture of determinism. Uh, so that was fun to include. And another one, um, the, um, yeah, of course there's Kung Fu Panda, nice, nice fatalistic um, sort of uh, self-fulfilling prophecy idea. Um, but it's portrayed really nicely and sort of a, you know, kind of cuts back and forth and it's, um, so that's a good one. Uh, and then another one, probably the, uh, the last one that comes to mind now. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's a few others like with, with time travel, of course, you know, tenant is a nice illustration. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things I was tempted to reference like Bill and Ted's excellent adventures. <laughs> nice time travel story. Um, that's maybe going a little back a little bit too far. Oh, I don't know. You know it depends on <laughs> both scene. But, uh, and then Watchmen too, I wanted to include, um, a, a reference to Watchmen. And I was thinking initially that it would be, I knew it'd be something involving Dr. Manhattan, you know, right. and it's sort of like, mm-hmm. uh, transcending time. Um, and so I Hands thought it would be, right, right. Exactly. So I thought it would be more, um, something about, about time travel or about, 
about sort of, you know, a temporality or something, but, um, but actually ended up including him as an example of sort of this Strassonian, uh, well, it's, it's, you know, Strassonian concept of, you know, sort of, uh, releasing oneself or, um, excluding oneself from the, from the strains of involvement, Mm. um, uh, escaping the strains of involvement. And so he's, he's an example of someone who, who does that, does that. So, yeah, I think it might be, it would be, uh, speaking of, you know, uh, part two or other volumes, I think it would be fun to sort of force yourself to say, okay, well, we have every, every case or thought experiment has to be something arising from, from film or, or literature, or sometimes even comic books and graphic novels. Uh, that would be a fun challenge. I think there's enough there. Uh, there'll be a few issues that would be tough to, to find, but, um, it was, uh, that was a really enjoyable part of, of putting together the book. Nice. Yeah. Cool. So out of all of these buzz puzzles, is there one that worries you the most and keeps you up at night? Well, uh, I think I might be a, a better philosopher if if these puzzles kept me up at night. Um, they, they don't. <laughs> but I do, um, you know, I do, I do really enjoy thinking about them. Um, and I think probably if there's one that is most troubling, uh, and this has kind of been a theme in some of your your earlier um, episodes and interviews, but I think moral luck uh, is really kind of the, the fundamental problem. Um, and you know, you can even view. If you wanted to, you could even view uh, the problem of freedom and determinism as a uh, you know just kind of a, a special case of antecedent luck. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that's really the. It, it's not so much as any specific. Um, you know, it's kind of like whatever um, kind of specific influence, whether it's causal or psychological mm-hmm. or otherwise, that you're worrying about. Um, the 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 problem of luck is kind of always in the background. Either you know as part of the specific challenge, or once you think you've addressed the challenge, well, here comes the problem of luck. So I think that that's, uh, that's probably the one that I would consider, um, you know, the, if there were, you know, in the nearest possible world where thinking about these uh, keeps me up at night, I think that's probably the, the one that, mm-hmm. that would do it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this bonus episode, Garrett. Um, and I'd like to encourage listeners to get a copy of the book. Uh, it's incredibly cheap, right? $24 for a paperback. Um, Garrett, besides getting a hold of this book, um, where can listeners go to follow your work? Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's been really great talking uh, talking about the book with you. Uh, probably the best place uh, to see what I'm up to is on uh, Phil People and Phil Papers. If you just search for Pendergraft, uh, I should show up uh, pretty quickly there. Um, I do post on Twitter occasionally. Uh, my handle is gpendergraft. Um, I, there's a few quasi-philosophical and quasi-serious musings on there in various uh, <laughs> places. So I try to post on it, you know, uh, I post less than I, than I would like to, but anyway, so you can, they can also check me out on yes. Twitter and, you know, I'd love to hear, uh, as I mentioned earlier, feedback on the book, positive or negative, um, so, uh, or, or any other work, um, that anybody stumbles across. Um, so yeah, anyone who, who would like to is welcome to email me. Uh, it's just garrett.pendergraft at pepperdine.edu. Uh, so I'd love to, love to keep the conversation going with, uh, whoever is interested in exploring the book. Great. Very cool. Yeah. Thanks again for joining us. This is our only bonus episode this summer, but we'll begin our fifth season of the podcast next month. This season will be a deep dive into the problem of divine foreknowledge and human free will. If you'd like an introduction to the topic while you're waiting, check out our season one interviews with John Martin Fisher and Linda Zagzebski, as well as our season four interview with Andrew Law. 